Welcome to Designers of Paradise, a podcast focused on people who are changing the ways in which we produce our food, care for our soil and water, and protect our climate. There's a steady flow of information now about the many ways in which agriculture is damaging our planet, disrupting natural ecosystems, polluting our air and water, and destroying the soil it depends on. But there's another set of stories to be told as well. These are the stories of the people dedicating their time and brilliance to reversing the impacts of our industrial food systems. From farmers and consumers to innovators and entrepreneurs, city planners and funders, an entire ecosystem of change makers is on the rise. Together, they're bringing in a next generation of agriculture, which is regenerating soils, food quality, local economies, and significantly, hope. Hope for a better, healthier, and more equitable future for all. These are the designers of paradise. These are people who see paradise as the natural condition of a world in balance, where our collective activity feeds the land and consciously works with nature to rebuild the abundance that supports all life, including our own. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. Please subscribe for Designers of Paradise at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm speaking today with Nicole Masters, who is a Kiwi, uh, working cross-globally, um, doing work, doing workshops and consulting in North America and in uh, Australasia. Uh, she's director and researcher, storyteller, and a soil siren um, with an organization called Integrity Soils, based in New Zealand, but also operating globally. Um, also author of For the Love of Soil, which we'll talk about later. And we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation, I think, right now, talking about soil biology, um, rebuilding the soil biome, whole systems, behavior change, and who knows, maybe a few more things will come up. So welcome, Nicole. Thank you for for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. Excited. Um, Give a little bit of, because obviously this is audio, and we'll have have links, obviously. you know, when we publish, we'll have lo- loads of links below the actual uh, podcast uh, for information. But uh, for the for the sake of people who are just listening, give could you give us a little bit of a background on Integrity Soils and um, maybe speak a little bit also about how you decided to do that? Because part, mm. part of the part of the point of the series is to really speak to people and encourage them to take whatever it is that's that's kind of driving them and put it into action in service of regeneration. Mm, Lovely. Um, Well, I might start just kind of where I started, I guess. So I I went to university. I wanted to be a great white shark researcher. Um, I did an ecology degree to do that. And when you, when you study um, for zoology, you know, they make you do, cells, uh, cell physiology, plant physiology, um, and ecological thinking. And I discovered plants and I was like, wow, plants are amazing. And, and just got really excited about plants. And then, then in my second year, I discovered soil and I was like, whoa, soil, this is really exciting. You know, this is actually more exciting than the sharks. I just shelved the sharks and um, that passion for soil is, has never died. 
and it it certainly wasn't an intention but I, I think if I look back on my life there's always been this real fascination with land management um, and in 1999, I was actually managing community gardens and the community gardens had been set up because it was a, a, a piece of bare ground that wasn't really being used. It was owned by the local city and they, um, they gave us the land to manage gardens on, but they never asked the community if that's what the community wanted. And we really dealt with a lot of vandalism. Um, I would come in and all the seed trays would be on the ground and all the plants were pulled out of the out of the greenhouse and out of the gardens. And um, it, 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 was, it was quite devastating um, to always feel like you're in this rebuilding process and knowing that actually parents were telling their kids to come down and terrorize us, you know, that, that real- That's, that's um, incredible. Oh, it was fascinating. And, and it was a great moment for me to just kind of reflect on, you don't push change on people. You don't go, well, we know what's best for you. This is what's going to happen in your local community without having real community engagement. So I think it was a real pivotal kind of um, moment of thinking, how do I want to be in the world? What, how do I want to influence change? And as a teenager, I'd lived in Hong Kong for seven years. My father was a pilot with Cathay Pacific. And the real take home for me during that time was that people will live in their own filth and squalor. Like um, everything was covered in this black soot and it was this, it was all the smog and everything. I mean, it's worse now, but you know, you had to constantly clean vehicles and there's plastic bags and, and trash everywhere. And I just kind of, when, you know what, if, 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 we're, if we're not up to actually speak up and influence and find ways to, to, to create change, people will live in their own filth. And so I think those two kind of moments um, really influenced a lot of my thinking. And I think doing an ecology degree was really valuable in terms of, of, of seeing things as systems. Uh, so I set up my own, I've always been self-employed. I've never, I've never done well by um, working for others. I just far too rebellious, I think. And um, I, when did I first start in business? I think I started in 2002. So my son was one and um, I was a single parent in a rural area. I was living on my father's property and I just couldn't find any work. And he helped me set up um, a worm farm business. We found this advert in a newspaper that said deceased worm farm estate. And uh, we converted a a dairy milking platform into a, a worm farm. So I had an indoor worm farm and I could drive up the middle of this um, milking shed. We filled it with concrete and I could fill the, feed the worms on either side. And then I had worms outdoors as well. And um, it turned into something that just catapulted my life. And I was really blown away by the opportunities that it offered. So for the next 10 years, I ran a worms in schools program. I was um, working for the the city councils in terms of household waste reduction and those contracts actually supported all the other learning and all of the the development of what my other interest really was which is how do we bring health and vibrancy back into to landscapes and so the worms I was always like people go oh you're the worm lady and I'd be like yeah not <laughs> okay <laughs> but I was very reluctant um, and but you know having those um, those city type contracts um, enabled me to learn and do and then develop the business into what it is now because it's really hard when you start up in a business um, 
and I think I was very fortunate to manage to to get those contracts. Otherwise, I don't know what I would have done because the consulting and the education around soil um, 20 years ago was not well respected. People were not really interested in talking about soil health and it was really difficult to make a living out of it. And I think particularly in New Zealand, a lot of farmers don't want to pay for advice. Um, and so, yeah, it felt like a long trek to kind of get to the position that I'm in now. So the Integrity Soils is a direct, um, like in a direct line from the worm farm or did you have to shift gears and, and restart it? I shifted gears, changed business name. So it was Tiger Cast Worms was the original name of the business. Um, okay. And then I changed yeah. it to, to Life Forms, but no one knew on earth what Life Forms meant. <laughs> and then I was dealing, like trying to bring industry groups together, trying to bring um, companies, policy, um, and have these sit around meetings. And what I realized is uh, the companies weren't interested in necessarily working together. They weren't interested in growing the sector in New Zealand at the time. And there was what I considered a lot of unethical behavior. So um, that's where the, the term integrity came out of was um, having integrity in how soils function, but also integrity in how businesses um, are run. And so I've never taken any kickbacks um, no, that's not true. Someone, you know, I get, I get some meals occasionally and things like that, but um, I, I, we've never been aligned with any products. It's always been, how do we provide independent science-based information um, or practical experience-based information that people can really trust? And, you know, it's a big call to call yourself something like integrity because you really have to, as a team, we, um, we have to work in making sure, are we doing the things that we say we're doing? Um, are we following through with what we've said that we've followed through with? If we've said something out of turn, do we go back and say, you know what, I said this yesterday and yeah. I don't know why I said it, but actually this is, you know, I'm just cleaning up with people. And so um, I think it reflects, it, it was a lot of, I guess, a, a few years of hard, it's always, it's not hard work because it's really fun, but, you know, like not sure if it was going to be a financial goer, like sitting there and thinking I should go and get a nine to five job. But yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, yeah the, the 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 name itself does have a real high bar, doesn't it? Integrity. It does. It does. Normally, integrity is yeah. is the thing we're looking for attached to something else rather than the thing itself, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So so now you're working. I'm mean, you're you're in Montana now, right? But but uh, mm -hmm. you you started up in New Zealand, and I assume you you go back there, and you've got a team there as well. Um, and so you're teaching in different places and consulting and, and, and how did that kind of grow out of the, the New Zealand startup? Did you end up uh, like attending some, some conferences or providing or working on a team in North America? How did that door open? No, yeah, I think, I think it was conferences really that opened the doorway. So conferences in Australia and then conferences in the US and Canada. Um, but yeah, I first came here to the US in 2013. I was invited by um, Dave Pratt from Ranching for Profit. And, you know, I walk into the room, I was in Laramie and, you know, there's 500 ranchers with their cowboy hats and they take their hat off and they go, howdy, ma'am. And I'm like, <laughs> you people are real. <laughs> I was just thinking you're in the movies or something. And just, um, 
yeah, just, you know, going through that Laramie landscape and just absolutely falling in love with the big sky and the rocks. And I love being with cattle and horses and just, I had this real sense like I'd come home, which um, is interesting because it's so far from New Zealand and I've never lived further than 40 minutes from the sea. And, you know, I have my dive certificate and I love to eat seafood and spend time in the sea. And it's like, why on earth are you living in Montana in the, you know, as far yeah. from the sea as you can get? But um, yeah, there's something about the lifestyle out here and the rocks, good rocks. So talk, talk a little bit about um, your work with the, with the ranchers in, in that area. Because I think a lot of people mm. who are looking into the kind of regenerative ag space, um, and that's not to say that's the only thing we talk about in the series, because we mm -hmm. touch on communities, we touch on urban situations, um, forestry, etc. And, and I, I hope soon we'll do a few marine uh, conversations as well. But um, I, I think for, for a lot of people maybe who are first coming into the conversation, they think about regenerative agriculture in terms of vegetables. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, it's yeah. like, what do they what do they buy at the market? Um, mm. So maybe talk a little bit about that journey with ranching and, and how that reception has, has progressed. Um, we, we made a note that we want to talk about behavior change. So maybe that would be a good place to start looking at that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I think to think back on my Hong Kong experiences, I, I was, I was poisoned with paraquat and there's something that's always been in the back of my mind, which is how do we, how do we get chemicals out of the ecosystem and the food supply and how do we improve the quality of the food that we're producing? And so a lot of the people that I've been working with are larger scale operators. Um, and, you know, I did start out in gardening and horticulture. I was working in avocados and apples and um, that kind of, and market gardens and, I think it really came home for me is how do we, how do we really influence as much land as possible? Um, and so, you know, talking to sheep and beef and, and ranching and bison and, you know, they really are the largest land stewards on the planet. They are responsible for the, the lion's share of land. Um, and so, yeah, I think that for me was, was really important. And what's been interesting and, and possibly it's part of ranching for profit because they really do work with progressive ranches and they really do shift paradigms is that, I've, yeah, I've never had to advertise these um, people come to workshops, ranches are really interested in how do we take our ranch to the next level? How do we restore ecosystem function? How do we um, improve food quality and, um, and be profitable? Um, you know, there's, this whole breakdown that we're seeing, um, you know, and you could talk about it from greenhouse gases or the loss of insects or water quality or any of that stuff. Um, it all comes back to, you know, what's been happening on large scale land management. Um, and I think these guys are really waking up to that. Um, they can, you know, we can look back through old, you know, cavalry testimonials in terms of what was growing in these landscapes and, you know, everything's become incredibly dysfunctional um, and unprofitable. And so I think, yeah, I mean, for me, it's a little bit like it's the inner and the outer landscape, like there's no separation. We are the, we are the ecosystem. We are the, the, um, we are nature, you know? And so we're seeing this, this breakdown with nature's, 
well-being and we're seeing the same thing with human health well-being and um so i think it calls to people on so many different levels mm. yeah it just it's it strikes me that like I mean, we're having this conversation now um it's what it's the 11th of december in 2019 and while we're speaking um in madrid the cop 25 conference uh, for climate change is happening mm -hmm. right um, and and so here here we're having a conversation about large-scale farming and and ranching and its impacts uh, we haven't specifically said so but um, you know clearly it, with the with the amount of greenhouse gas contributed through soil disruption and and the scale of operations like this and then you kind of lay that alongside bolsonaro's genesis activity in the Amazon, you know, for the sake of opening mm. up new ranch lands. And we're kind of, I, I mean, yeah. pers personally, I'm, I'm really, really thirsty to see some kind of balance you know, between yeah. people taking, taking land in the right direction to try and compensate for so much of going in the wrong direction. So that's, that's oh, an interesting absolutely. parallel, I think, to be considering. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, you know, and it's a big part of my thinking, and I've done a lot of training and organizational learning and um, thinking about unintended consequences. And these knee-jerk kind of reactions to something like, let's just say, um, we're not going to eat meat as a reaction to uh, what's happening in, in South America or concerns around methane, is you, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. But I think of in terms of, of the way that we think about systems and it's like on one side of your hand, you could have right deforestation and, and um, putting in soya beans or whatever in South America. But on the other side, you've got that reaction, the reaction, which is we're going to ban something or, um, you, you know, we're not, but, what it comes down to is it's the same kind of thinking like we're not transforming our thinking around these problems and if you just have a knee jerk or a, okay this is happening so we're not going to do that you end up causing more problems and that's what we seem to go from is these problem solution which creates a problem which is a solution and on and on and on we go and, and historically we've been geared to do that and i think that's what's exciting about regenerative agriculture is it is a transformation of thinking. It's a transformation in terms of um, how do we approach an issue? What are we doing in terms of our food choices or our land management choices? And, and that's what I think is really exciting because you start to think in whole systems. I mean, if you just think about methane, for instance, we measure the emissions from a, from a, from a cattle beast. But you don't look at, well, what's the drawdown in healthy soils or what is happening with organisms that eat methane because methane is actually a food source or what happens chemically in the atmosphere above green grass. And instead, we just focus on this one thing, which is this is what something's outputting instead of, well, how does a natural ecosystem work? And I think the more that people do ecological studies, ecological thinking and just start thinking in broader terms, we'll actually come up with things that really do resolve the crises that we're dealing with and deal with it rapidly. Yeah, I think there's a real impatience with complexity. Mm. Right, which, mm. which, and, and it's confused with making something overly complicated. Yes, absolutely. Right? Now, I don't know if in another language there would be distinct words for those two ideas, so not so close together, but they are different. They totally are. And I think, you know, complication is the piece of machinery. Complicated is the A equals B equals C, and you might have lots of moving parts, but you can calculate how something's going to go. 
you can get a spaceship to Mars. But complexity, there's no A, B, and C. I, I have this great story. Um, I was listening to Daniel Halal, who's an um, amazing soil doctor. And he was saying he was um, listening to, he was in, he was hanging out with some Bedouin tribe members and they were teaching their children and they asked the children, what's one plus one? And the one child spoke up and said, well, if it's a nanny goat and a billy goat, then it could be four or it could be five, <laughs> but we're not trained that in, in our, like it's a modern, um, let's say, uh, I guess European way of approaching things that one plus one is two, which is it's complicated thinking, right? But we know what we can get for an answer. When you deal with ecological thinking or you look at how other cultures actually ask these questions, they come out with totally different answers. And it's like, we're programmed to think this way from the moment we're born. Um, and and we're past, also present future. And we're also programmed to not believe we can navigate that. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. complicated. It's too complex. It's just going to be confusing and you, you know, you won't sort your way through that. Designers of Paradise is made possible in part by Mind and Media. Over the last quarter century, the writers, producers, storytellers, and media specialists at Mind and Media have spearheaded a multitude of engaging and complex communication campaigns. Mind and Media is a proud supporter of the work being done by the wonderful and passionate people of Rasa, who are engaged in the creation of a regenerative future for generations to come. Find out more about Mind and Media at mindandmedia.com. That's M-I-N-D-A-N-D-M-E-D-I-A.com. And now, back to Designers of Paradise and host Eric Van Lennon. Welcome back to Designers of Paradise, where we're speaking today with Nicole Masters from Integrity Soils. I'm working on a project at the moment that involves 10 scientists and 10 of Australia's leading regenerative farmers. And the questions the farmers are asking is, how do we value not science that is not reductionist or, or linear? How do we value the, the, the complexity these large systems, you know, and they're very hard to capture just using our current scientific methodology. But it's what we need to learn to do is how do you value complexity? How do you value diversity? And, and that's what's exciting about seeing some of the ecosystems um, services research or the full life cycle analysis work that's starting to happen on regenerative operations is see that these operations are a major part of the solution. But look at the whole picture. You don't just pull one little thread apart and um, think that you can make a conclusion from that. Yeah. Mm. Um, we got technical when we said we wouldn't get technical. <laughs> we, we, we did, and it's so hard not to. Um, it is, and it's so fascinating because it's, I mean, it's I just, I just wish, I just wish we were teaching children. Yeah. Whole system thinking. Oh. Imagine how different the planet would look if we were. And what's really interesting is the questions that we're asking in regenerative agriculture are the same questions that the health sectors, sectors are looking at or education is asking. Like it's like it's a whole paradigm of how our society's been built needs to come down and needs to be rebuilt. 
yeah. which is you are not you're not there in isolation it's not just you as this one selfish entity that you can do whatever you want and um not have consequences on everything around you and it's like we don't get taught that as a child that that puts back into my mind an image that popped up about five minutes ago or maybe 10 minutes ago in this conversation when we're you would you were starting to talk something somewhat about um you know soil health or we've come, come around it several times from different directions already but um this concept of there being a continuum between the um internal microbial community Mm -hmm. right that we mm -hmm. carry yeah and that which exists in the soil yeah right which which, which inevitably supports us i mean when, when i spoke with dd um Purcells, uh, a few weeks ago we, we went into that a little bit because that's that's part of what what sprang her into her current focus mm, yeah um but i get this really really clear image of, of a total flow between the two and and, and when you see yeah things that way it's actually impossible to continue to see them as individuals that are isolated it, right because yeah because we're a vessel you know that is basically holding a flow yeah yeah that's right and and, and that's what we're that's what we're seeing um coming through so clearly is that microbiome um has such a big impact on on human health and is having such a big impact obviously on soil health but many of these microbes are the same microbes you know we talk about people taking lactobacillus well it's a really important soil microbe you you take antibiotics they're all made from um actinobacteria um they're developing um a vaccine for ptsd to give to first responders um, and people that are involved in wars that it's made from a soil microorganism and what's really interesting is we're not even farmers that are working with land all the time and not being exposed to these organisms anymore because they've disrupted the soil gut microbiome and as a response we're seeing more things like depression and suicide which i mean there's causal links in there um but those microorganisms are what prime serotonin so you feel good i mean the it's absolutely fascinating um they've developed a, a quorum signal so that's a chemical signal um to flush cholera out of the body so if you drink this drink it, it will actually remove cholera from the host and they've, they've had it around for some time but it hasn't been re released commercially i don't believe um, but that same quorum signal so that same chemical metabolite that biology produce is also used to control um, common fungal diseases in plants and it's the same organism that we use to expel cholera and it's like the this the the breakthrough research that's just happening in this space is so exciting um yeah it makes you realize how little we know and at the same time do we have to know it all or do we just need to start to restore integrity to these systems and have um diverse functional ecosystems so there's this process called quorum signaling or quorum sensing so that uh, microbes and plants uh, are constantly emitting different types of chemical signals to communicate with each other. And what they've found is that these chemical signals can turn something on or off. So medical world is very excited about it because instead of having just like, um, let's say an antibiotic, which kills everything, you find the chemical signal to switch something off, then you can be very prescriptive about what you're switching off. So they developed this, um, quorum sensing molecule for cholera so you drink the drink 
um, the cholera in your body recognizes the chemical signal and thinks, oh, there's too many other cholera in here and it will actually flush out of the body. Um, I don't believe it's on the market or it should be given freely to people, but I don't believe it is. But the interesting thing is, is this chemical signal is the same signal that we can use on plants to turn off many quite intense fungal diseases like sclerotinia and botrytis. So that chemical signal for a human disease is the same chemical um, molecular signal to turn off diseases, which is just fascinating. And so a lot of what um, I guess the medical world is learning about the gut microbiome is now being able to be translated as well to agriculture. Um, and so a lot of what we're doing with um, cropping and in rangeland management is how how sensitive can we get? How little? What is the micro movement that's required to, to get biology to wake up and respond? And we're talking about like parts per trillion of some of these chemical biological signals to wake ecosystems up, um, which is incredibly exciting. Um, it doesn't have the same negative consequences by trying to force something to, to bend to your will. Instead, we go, we are creating that environment for things to flourish. Let's see what flourishes um, and let nature dictate because we're just little kids playing in a sandpit when it comes to understanding um, how these systems work. Um, and we've been trying to force it and make it and, and really play in the world of chemistry and genetic engineering instead of looking at how do I set that ecosystem up for health? Yeah, when you talk about behavior change and we talk about whole systems and, and there's obviously there's, there's a continuum between those concepts. Um, and it, it makes me think about this quest I've had for quite a while, um, which is to try and understand the process by which a species i.e. our own, um, mm. starts to reach some level of maturity. Right? Yeah. And, I, and I believe a hallmark of maturity is being able to have the sense to sit back and allow something to develop rather than trying to manipulate it to death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, you know, I think a lot of our responses and mentalities have been very infantile or, you know, immature and yeah. a lot of things it's like oh you bit me so i'm gonna kill you, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. Or, or at least yeah. at least this kind of early adolescence right where you test things just for the sake of seeing if you can do it yeah oh i can do it should i do it no yeah. you shouldn't right that's that's an adult thought <laughs> yeah so what we're discovering is these syntropic systems so basically um as we start to create um, the setting for microbial function and plant function that these systems start to um, evolve into systems that we are seeing increased resilience. We're seeing um, systems that are able to recover after extreme events, if that's frost or temperature or flooding or whatever. But um, that's when we really get in flow is you now have a system that self corrects that now will look after itself. You just got to get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, mm. and that's that's where we want to be for sure. Yeah, which is possibly where we started a few hundred thousand years ago. Yeah, possibly, but we have you know we have science now that I think is really helpful. Like I think it's informative. I don't think you make decisions based on on science, but it it is really helping us to understand how some of this let's say syntropy is happening on on a property or. Um, 
we can make more informed decisions that we're measuring and monitoring than we would have done a couple of hundred years ago. You know, so I think we're not going back in time with this. This is not going back to agriculture, you know, 140 years before, um, you know, the whole chemical thing really took off. It, it is, how do we, how do we evolve to think, yeah, in, in systems, but yeah, yeah using yeah. that science. Mm. And see, see ourselves as part of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think pretty pretty critical there. Um, yeah. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about your book. Yes. For the love of soil. For the love of soil. Yeah, it's um it's been an interesting journey <laughs> getting it out. Um, I actually took it to a few publishers and they told me that my my audience was too narrow for them to take it up. Um, and they wanted it to be more technical. Uh, the first line in the book is, I'm not normal. <laughs> and then I go into, well, this is what normal is. And the people I work with ain't normal either. Um, and they wanted me to remove all of that. Like they wanted it to be quite technical. And I just went, you know what? There's lots of technical books on the market. Um, a lot of good stuff on biological chemistry and, um, yeah, there are lots of good books, but I didn't want to write a technical book. I wanted something that people would engage with and read, especially busy people and especially people like ranchers and farmers. Um, so it, it's written through the context of people's stories. So I start with my own story, um, but really looking at how is it that farmers and ranchers are transforming landscapes and using it through the eye of my coaching process, which is we address what those major limiting factors are. Like, you know, we, we need the sun. If the sun goes out, we're in trouble, but how do you harness sunlight energy? And then into uh, what's the next limiting that's gonna stop production? Um, and that would be air. So what's happening with air movement? How do we address that? If air is moving, what's next? Well, then it's water. And so chapter by chapter, we're working through that a coaching process, but enabling people to start, to start going out even if that's their own gardens or, you know, rangeland and look at what's, what's not working as well as it could and how do I take that step up and using um, other people's voices, I guess, through their experiences and the practical things that they've done to, to really enliven a landscape. And so it's quite practic practical. It's got a technical element that uh, some of my people that I work with really want that technical science but it's written in a way that I've had um, home gardeners say to me that they've really enjoyed it because they can just read the stories and get value out of it. And, it, you know, really come back to how do we, how do we start growing nutrient dense food? How do we get the chemicals out of the food system? Um, and so, yeah, that's the whole journey. It also goes into what some of the common chemicals do and what they do to soil, what they do to plant physiology and what they do to human health and some of these unintended consequences. So when we're talking about like trying to force or make something, um, many of the chemicals that we're using are actually creating a whole plethora of the unintended consequences. And, and what are they? And do we actually need these chemicals? And if, if you pulled this chemical out, what could you use instead? Um, so that's kind of been the approach. So I wanted it to be something people would read. So it's fairly practical, but, but um, it sounds just by your style of conversation and the fact that mm. you call yourself a storyteller as well mm. as a, uh, you know, a soil siren, um, that it's written in a voice that is pretty accessible. So people don't need to, to worry about not being overly technically trained mm -hmm. to understand it. Is that, would that be right? 
Yeah, and I've, I've actually put boxes in so some of the real technical stuff goes into a box. So if you don't want to read the technical stuff, you can skip over it. Um, but yeah, I think some of that technical stuff is really interesting in, in how that it does relate to us as well as the human body. Um, so yeah, yeah, if people want to skip over the technical stuff, they can and just enjoy the read. Um, yeah, I've had a lot of people say, sorry. So, and they can order that through your website, right? Yeah, and it's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and the audio book is available through every single audio book provider. So I made okay. sure that it was out. So yeah, and I'm finding a lot of people are listening to audio books these days, and um, you know, it's it's um, it's read with the New Zealand accent, so Americans will be feel more familiar with a New Zealand accent by the time they finish, so they won't mistake me for an Australian. Quite different, everybody, quite different. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, mm. You know, we've actually, I've, I've spoken with two of your author colleagues, um, two, two other women mm -hmm. who, are in, who are involved in soil and microbiome uh, type, uh, type work, I suppose, and, and explorations. Yeah. Um, so, oh, girls. Yeah, so that's Judith Schwartz and Dee Dee Pursehouse. Um, mm. Like, how did you find each other? Oh, so, well, this is the mycelial network working, I think. Um, how did I find Dee Dee? Oh, Dee Dee. I, I, um, Dee Dee is, was very good friends with um, Peter Donovan, who's the Soil Carbon Coalition guy. And he was out doing soil carbon measurements. And he, he's like, you need to meet Dee Dee. You, you guys are um, you've got a lot in common. So, um, yeah, she's 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 one of the best educators I've ever met. I really enjoy her teaching style, and yeah, I guess <laughs> I was out. I was moving some cows out here in Montana, and a lady joined us to move cows, and her name was Gretel Ehrlich. And Gretel Ehrlich, who I didn't know at the time, is quite a famous um, Wyoming, Montana author. Um, she wrote The Solace of Open Spaces and has written some incredible books about ranching in, um, in Montana and books about, she, she lives in Greenland and she's an amazing author. And um, yeah, we got talking and we developed a friendship. She's a fabulous lady. And I think she must be in her seventies. Anyway, she's very good friends with Judith. And so we got talking and she introduced me to Judith, which was just amazing. So um, it was just through that questioning of of how how do we how do I write a book and how do I get it out and knowing that I'm not I'm not a writer, um, but you know I did it so I wrote a book so now I'm a writer so I can call myself a writer but it was so interesting to kind of I decided I was going to write a book and then suddenly I have all these women author friends and I'm like this just feels like I'm just on the right track you know you're on a train and no matter what I couldn't get off and um you know there had been you know some of the setbacks from publishers saying oh you know it won't get taken up and um you know some critique from from authors saying they didn't think it was very good and just going you know what I, I know it needs to be published and I know I need to do it and just doing it anyway and then the feedback from producers has just been absolutely fantastic um not just to me but kind of hearing it through through the community so feeling like actually it, it is it's working and people are, are, are ready to hear it and I write like I speak so it's not lyrical poetic beautiful writing I'm just talking you know just like this conversation so that's very much how the book is so I think it makes it easy to read um yeah and so 
I think in the first month we sold over a thousand copies and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. You know, people, people are actually really interested. So Absolutely. I feel like it was a good step to make. And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of like the same way that you describe really getting started with integrity soils, getting started with the worm farm, you know, and each other step, yeah. you're moving from sharks to plants and then to soils is sort of like, well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if anyone else understands what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it anyway and having it work out. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's pretty cool. You know, I was, yeah. I and I think, yeah, I like to hear those stories. Yeah. I think there's a lot of trust. Yeah. But I think um, I was speaking to someone and they said, the only thing that you should doubt is your doubts. And that's what kind of gave me strength of just trust in the process, trust that I know that, that what I'm, the space that I'm working with and the results that we're getting are just phenomenal. I mean, and it's beyond a lot of what the scientists say is possible and yet we're doing it. And I just think it's a message and information that needed to get out and it needed to get out fast. And I just had to trust in everything that, that came along. And it's not saying there weren't hiccups, but um, that doubt your doubt really was helpful. I think that's like, you know, that should be over the ranch gate or something, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. Doubt your doubts. Mm-hmm. Okay, I've got a couple. I've got a couple of questions um, I'd like to explore with you that are kind of on the other, the other end of the scale, right? Um, mm-hmm. Sort of meta, meta level questions. Um, and this is this is this is a conversation we're having, but it's also a conversation I think which is out there, and it needs to be mm-hmm. out there. Um, so, yeah. so one of them, you know, the way in which various advocates and practitioners of regenerative agriculture kind of talk about all the different things it can deliver it can deliver repaired mm-hmm. soils it can re- it can deliver um you know food sovereignty and food or at least at the minimum food security uh, uh, a closer mm-hmm. connection between nutritional quality and health it can bring down carbon it can help with with soil moisture and and um, you know that whole element of of, of climate shock um, so I, I kind mm-hmm. of package all that, or I bundle that into something I call the promise, like the promise of regenerative agriculture, yeah. right? And but but depending mm-hmm. on who you talk to, maybe maybe some things are are kind of emphasized over others. My question, yeah, is how can we tell if we're getting there? <laughs> right, you know, we, we, you uh, know we've 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 got this sense of like it's going to make things a lot better, but I haven't seen a huge amount of agreement or clarity or even focus on what those broader indicators should be? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it it comes back to ecosystem services and it comes back to actually people benchmarking because you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. And and you'll find people making fairly lofty claims without doing this benchmarking. So it's a big, big part of what we do is set people up to to be benchmarking um, some of these different initiatives or working with agencies that can do some of the measurements, like let's say sedimentation or water quality, um, greenhouse gas emissions, food quality, you know, there's laboratories that we can send meat samples to or grain samples to, to to test, you know, residues and nutrient density. Um, And so I think it comes back to, you need to put your money where your mouth is and and there's a lot of people making claims that they're not backing up. And, and I sometimes feel like a bit of a 
Debbie Downer when I meet people at like the farmers markets and they'll go, Oh, well, we're more nutrient dense. And I'm like, cool. Can I see your data? Oh, well, we don't need to cause we're grass fed and, and no, I'm sorry. That's not going to cut it. And it has no integrity saying stuff like that. Like if you're going to say something, you need to know that you can back that up. Um, I think around the water cycle and water infiltration, that's stuff that people can do really cheaply and really simply themselves. And it should be quite fast. Um, but uh, on a lot of properties, it's not because the water cycle is broken. Um, and so there are things that we can measure, like even um, some of my friends in Western Australia, we calculated that the carbon drawdown that they were doing on their property at the time was, the, was effectively the emissions from 22,000 people. 22,000 people from one ranch. So I think there is... Um, there are very simple methods. There's some very simple stuff that we can be doing. I think the full life cycle analysis is important. So I think that, that it's regenerative agriculture is actually demanding of more, more data collection, more monitoring than, um, than, has what been, than what has been done in the past, because we need to be able to demonstrate this to people. We need to be able to, to, to show we know that this. We know that this works. I, I, we don't need more research to show whether or not it works. We just need producers to actually show that they are doing it. Um, you know, and I think we can argue. Yeah. I think I think something you said in the um, in the webinar you did with with Raleigh Durham was that regenerative agriculture is outcome based. Yes. Yeah. So we need to measure those outcomes. And and there's. There's so many things that can affect those outcomes. You can have two people do uh, the exact practices on different parts of the country, let's say, and get totally different outcomes. And, and it could be down to their mindset. It could be down to their management. Um, uh, it could be different climactic variables. So it's, it's not a plug and play. Hey, all you need to do is, I don't know, a cover crop and that's going to solve all your problems. It's, it's looking at, in your context, what is going to work well um, and not, and, th and that's the challenge of regenerative agriculture. It's not a one size fits all. It's not just put on 250 pounds and you'll be fine, which is what, um, you know, conventional agriculture has been kind of running off, except it's not working in conventional agriculture these days either. Um, but yeah, that's where the outcomes kind of are your determinant of success. Um, you know, are you more profitable? Are, are you happier? You know, so w one of the things we're measuring um, in some of these Australian projects is wellness. You, you know, that's an outcome. Are you less stressed? Um, so yeah, I'm quite excited to see that researchers are even entertaining the idea of measuring stress in farmers. So Absolutely. What, we, what we find is as you adopt these practices, your stress re reduces because what used to be a challenge is now an opportunity. Um, what used to feel like hopelessness is now like, wow, I'm in action. And um, seeing things like profitability turn around and animal health turn around and yeah. Well, what's, what's interesting about that, and, and I think there has long been a public image, right, of farming, which may or may not have actually jived with, with current, particularly industrial reality, um, as, 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 you know, the farmer being really, really intimately uh, engaged with her land. Right mm -hmm. with her mm -hmm. soil, with with the mm -hmm. quality of of what's going in and coming out of that, and of course, mm -hmm. as you said earlier, you know you can't just slap five hundred pounds of whatever fertilizer on there and get a result. Um, 
it, it requires knowing and learning that system and then being part of it and, and watching it and adjusting and tinkering and responding as it changes. Um, so there's a level of intimacy there. Um, and and I, I can't help but, but think that that is part of what also adds to mental health, what also adds to sort of kind of some, you know, greater emotional fulfillment for yeah. people who are, who, you know, who take that up. Okay, so, yeah. we, so we, we looked at, 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 you know, things you can measure and, you know, important benchmarking and that sort of thing on the case of maybe mm. a farm by farm. But if, mm. if we took it to, you know, this concept of scaling out versus scaling up. In other words, you know, reaching more and more growers, reaching more, covering more and more territory. Yeah. Then what sort of indicators do you think we'd be looking for, for, for um, fulfilling the promise? Fulfilling on the promise. Yeah. Well, I think it, it is knowledge transfer and, and, um, and I've been working with some different agencies and groups in terms of how is it that you, that we, we really expand the uptake. And, um, you know, I think the example of the property that I'm staying on here at the moment, um, we call some of these ranches, the opinion leaders, you know, and they're well respected in the community, um, that they're thoughtful, innovative people. And once they start to uptake how quickly the community around them start to, to change practices and, um, you know, this, this community, I think we calculated over 55% of the land area is now being managed regeneratively, um, you know, probably just in a 10 mile radius, but how exciting that is that you see um, communities will, will listen and we, we can um, scale across communities quite quickly um, by identifying those opinion leaders. So, you know, there's lots of different ways that we're investigating in terms of not we like me but you know the whole regenerative sector is investigating in terms of how do you get this information out because it's so pertinent it's so workable um yeah i mean and i think the the industrial model is coming home to roost and um it, it's heart-wrenching to go and speak in some of these rural cropping communities and just see what people are dealing with and um it becomes so stressful and and if you look at stress processes in the in in the human body you know when you get that stressed um the brain doesn't function you're in that survival mode flight and fight so it's really hard to to then take risk or what is perceived risk or step outside what you know because it's really hard to process um and so one of the things that we see is really missing and one of the things that we're really focused on is how do we coach more coaches so I'm, I'm looking for investors at the moment to develop a 38-week training school to train coaches so that we've got people on the ground that can support the development of these hubs um, and the development of uh, just really robust well-managed regenerative operations so that they become the communicators and they become the pollinators in their communities so it's it's not something you're going to um, legislate for or have government agencies really do it's about people to people and um, when you look at the behavior change science what changes people is not data and financial incentives and all that stuff it's this it's the real heart connection stuff like what's important to you what would make soil health worth investing in um, and those take conversations you know, so that's really exciting. That's I think that's really really exciting because actually my next question was going to be, um, like, what advice would you give to people who wanted to basically start becoming more active in this space? You've got you've got mm. good advice for someone who's actually working land. 
But, mm. you know, if I was if I was just thinking about do I want to study soil science, for instance, mm. um, you know, like what would be my ways to put that to meaningful work? And I think mm. the, these co these coaching hubs yeah. start to actually get to that. Yeah. Yeah, they do, and, and, and can be incredibly successful and, and, and incredibly community-changing. Um, I think of some of the operate, cropping operations I work with, and they, they tell me that they've put, like, $1.5 million into their local communities. I mean, they're bringing rural communities back to life. I mean, you drive through, you know, some of these cropping areas, and everything's dying. I mean, the communities are dying. The soil's dying. It's like, okay, how, it, the potential to actually shift is, is massive because people, they want to stay on their land. They don't, you know, they don't want to leave. Yeah, yeah, um, it's, it's, it's a primal, it's important, but it's also primal, you know, it's yeah. like you identify with place. Yeah, so I, and I think people, um, you know, and I think that that Tipping Point book is very good to, to just draw people's attention to how quick change can actually happen. Um, and I think of like when no-till came in, so the no-till practices of like spraying um, glyphosate and um, direct drilling, those practices within five years, everybody was doing it. I mean, it, it happened really fast in the rural community. And I think what we're seeing in some of these regions is uptake has been really rapid. Even if you look at cover crop uptake, for instance, um, I think two years ago in Alberta, 200,000 acres got planted in cover crops. I mean, it's, it's from pretty much zero. So, I mean, the, the whole thing is moving very quickly. And I think um, it's, it's been driven internally and externally. So I talked to some of my cropping guys about what made them change and they said market signals, seeing that uh, people are demanding residue free food like instead of buying organic that says we're not using anything what i'd like to see is that products are labeled with what did they use how many fungicides pesticides and herbicides do you use and let consumers buy because a consumer won't buy that stuff yeah um yeah. and it, it's never going to happen in the u.s because you've got too much corporate interest but um to, for, for a consumer to actually say i want nil residue food and what i've seen in, in canada is like the canola and lentil um, boards are, are saying to growers, you can't spray a herbicide as a desiccant. That's not what it's registered for, and we won't take your grain. Now, that's been driven by consumers saying, we don't want that stuff in our food. Glyphosate is not a food additive. Atrazine is not a food ad additive. Um, even the neonicotinoids are coming through in, in food uh, or in honey or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think a big part of it is people being aware, how is food grown, which is what my, one of my focuses of the book is, this is how food is grown industrially, and this is how we can not do that. So if you were to talk to someone that's cropping, for instance, and saying, well, we have to use all these chemicals, it's actually BS. You don't need to use all those chemicals, right? So how do, how do we get around that? And being a demand for clean food. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. We're about out of time. Um, yeah. Is there final thoughts you want to leave with, with listeners? Um, I think that I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Eric. It's not a conversation I normally have. Um, no, I think, I, I think for me, really feeling the sense that there is a tide that's shifting and um, feeling really excited about the innovative people that are taking this on and the farmers and ranchers that I work with. And yeah, I just, it's exciting times to be on the planet. Yep, I agree. I agree. Mm. Well, thanks, Nicole, so much for your time and the quick uptake.
Um, this yeah. was a real, a real quick turnaround between initial, you know, contact and, and being able to do the interview. Thank um, you. And um, all the best with the next steps forward. Yeah, thanks. And we'll, we'll keep talking, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely love to. Thanks for having me on, Eric. Thank you for listening to Designers of Paradise. I'm your host, Eric Van Lennep. Join me next week as we bring you another eye-opening interview with the people who are revolutionizing the way we produce our food. Indeed, the people on the front lines of designing paradise. Designers of Paradise is produced by RASA, the Regenerative Agriculture Sector Accelerator. To learn more, go to www.rasa.ag. That's www.rasa.ag. If you have any ideas you'd like to suggest, such as folks we should be talking to or a specific topic we should cover, hit me up with your ideas on Twitter at Greenheart. That's G-R-E-E-N underscore H-E-A-R-T, Greenheart. We'll see you next week.